Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. This week, I'd like to welcome Karen Perlman to the show. Karen is a former professional dancer turned editor and an editing academic whose new book, Cutting Rhythms, is based on her PhD dissertation. The book examines how we as editors can affect pacing and timing as we cut. It looks into the ambiguousness of the loaded word rhythm, which many consider an editor's intuition. Her book is published by Focal Press, and two excerpts have generously been given to our listeners. A link to these can be found in our articles section at www.artoftheguillotine.com articles.html. First, let me thank you for joining me. That's a pleasure. You've had such a varied career. You've been a film editor, you have your PhD in film, and you're also an instructor. Yes, I am. What do you feel was a pivotal point in your career that allowed you to grow the most as an editor? As an editor? Well, a pivotal point is hard to pick in one's career for growing as an editor. And so if it's all right with you, I would pick probably two points that were really key. Okay. One thing is that I trained as a dancer. I spent the first, um, the, my, I had a whole career, in fact, as dancers do when they're, when they're quite young, dancing on the international stages of the world. Um, and really, all of my focus of my life was about interpreting movement and, and finding a director's vision that was articulated in movement and not in, in words. So I you know, really grew to, to have an understanding of, of how movement creates feeling in an audience from a very you know, immediate level not at all theoretical, very practical level. Mm-hmm. Um, when I quit dancing, so, so the whole dance career was very pivotal to my uh, growth as an editor. When I quit dancing, I went to the Australian Film, Television, and Radio School and trained as an editor, and that, of course, is another pivotal point for me in mm-hmm. becoming an editor and developing my skills as an editor. What my idea was when I started editing was that editing was a form of choreography, that I could take all that skill that I had of interpreting nonverbal instruction from directors and giving it a shape and a meaning for an audience and apply that to editing. And when I went to the film school, of course, I learned all the actual skills and had all the experiences of working one-to-one with directors and handling all the technical aspects of editing and trained myself up for that so that I could um, put my theory into practice. Now, how did the opportunity to write this book come about? Well, so, okay, so then what happened in the story, and this this story comes out in the preface of the book as well, is that Mm -hmm. when I was finishing up film school, a new head of the editing department came in uh, named Bill Russo. And Bill has a real, a, a kind of a, a talent, if you will, for seeing other people's talents. He's also a great editor, but he he really can look at people and see what it is they should really be doing. <laughs> and so he looked at me, and I had not even graduated from school yet, and he got me teaching right then and there. <laughs> and he had me teaching theory for editors because they, there was a kind of a disconnect in the school. There was a theory department and there was and everything else was practice and the, he didn't feel like the editors were getting a connection there between ideas and what they were doing practically and he could see that this was a real fascination for me. So he got me teaching and, and then he asked me a question. 
so we sit down, we're at the table, we're saying, oh, what, sh- what should we teach? Well, we should teach montage, and we should teach mm-hmm. structure, and all these words that get thrown around in the edit suite but never get defined. And, you know, someone comes in and they say, oh, well, you know, the rhythm is off, and they leave, and you go, well, what do they mean? And so this is a word that you that an editor needs to to um, to understand, and and that's what got me started on this book. Montage was easy to define, structure is easy to talk about, rhythm there was nothing written. Mm-hmm. The editors that you talk to just say it's intuitive, they walk away. <laughs> they don't want to talk <laughs> about it anymore, and you know there was just there was nothing that could you know help that I could sort of pull apart and show to a student. Well, this is what it, rhythm is. So mm-hmm. I had to write the book. Even in the book, you talk about how intuition almost automatically puts up a roadblock for yep. for everyone. So with such a tough word, a word that's putting up so much trouble, mm. how did you go about defining it or explaining it? Rhythm. Yeah, because um, it's so loaded. And then <laughs> how do you prepare even the audience to grasp it in such a large context? That's a good question because that's why it's a whole book. I mean, in the end, you know, I can actually bring it down to 26 words, what <laughs> rhythm is. <laughs> but, but you know, to really unpack that and give it something something useful for a student or or a filmmaker or an editor to get their teeth into it really had to approach it from a, a whole lot of angles and and found out that really it it covers so much of what an editor is doing um even you know people always say oh rhythm and structure that's what the editor creates even structure is about rhythm. It has mm-hmm. the structure has a rhythm. If it's going to work, it's it's got to engage with rhythm. So really, it, rhythm covers almost every every aspect of of what an editor does. And um, and so my first job in ter- in terms of how I was going to figure out what it meant was to to get past this question about intuition and to find out what we mean when we say it's intuitive. So that that's the that's the first chapter is what do we mean when we say it's intuitive because I have to say I have huge respect for intuition. Mm-hmm. Intuition is spot on and the best editors are the most intuitive as editors. So there's no time in this book where I say, "Oh, forget your intuition, use the theory." That's mm-hmm. just totally wrong from my <laughs> point of view. All I was trying to do was to help people find a way to support their intuition and grow it, enhance it, extend it. Okay. Um, so, so that's that's where I had to start was with with figuring out what intuition is. Now, will you actually break it down into six subgroups? I guess so like expertise, implicit learning, uh, judgment, yeah. sensitivity, creativity, and rumination. Could you tell me about these and how you came to determine that these were the six that you could uh, focus on? Well, well, those are not my categories. Those are from a book um, called The Intuitive. Practitioner. Okay. Uh, it, it's by um, it's it's written by Guy Claxton, mm-hmm. and um, and that what what happened? Okay, so here I am. I set out to be an. At first, I was a dancer. Then I decided to be an editor. I set out to be an editor, and suddenly I find I'm a PhD student <laughs> again. <laughs> okay, so now I'm a PhD student. Great. I'm going. I and I want to find out about intuition. And in fact, intuition, it turns out, is a huge area of study, particularly in philosophy, but also in like psychology and so forth. And again, I wanted to, I wanted to find something useful. This is always what I come back to. It's my touchstone. Is it useful? So while I found the philosophy completely fascinating, um, 
the book that I ended up drawing on to find some some ways of breaking down what what intuition is was actually a book that was written for practitioners. Now, granted, practitioners in another field, it's written for teachers so that they can understand because teachers actually have the same problem. They know something intuitively and then they find they have to justify how they are teaching it. So so this this book for teachers, what I found quite useful was giving me a a set of ideas about what intuition was that could apply across to another form of practice. You use a lot of different areas. You use dance, neurology, um, psychology, philosophy. <laughs> how did you know even to go into those areas, like like the Bill Claxton book? How did you ever know to yeah. look towards that? Well, I mean, this you know, being the information age, it's a little little daunting when you go to look at at you know to find something because in a way you can find too much information and not, you know, the one gem that you're that you're really looking for. So, I mean, you know, as simple really as as um, going to the the UTS University of Technology in Sydney, where I was a, enrolled as a PhD student, going to the library, and I found that you know when you search intuition as a subject, they send you to six different floors. So I had to go to all six different floors, and I had to, you know, I had to go to the philosophy section, I had to go to the education section, I had to go to the psychology section, and I actually just had to do the research. There was no other way. There was no sort of simple way. No one has written that. It's a book I'd love to follow up with, actually, mm-hmm. is that book about intuition and, you know, drawing all that knowledge together, but not just at the moment. Now, in the book, you mentioned two sources for rhythm that informs an editor, which is the body's uh-huh. experience yeah. as well as the editor's film experience. How did mm-hmm. you discover these? Was it something you read about through Bill Claxton? No, no. I The ideas about where the knowledge for editing comes from are pretty much based on my own experience. That's where I started and then had to find, you know, ways of, of backing up my intuition on the subject. But then when I was training as a dancer, dancers often talk about body knowledge or body mm-hmm. memory. And that's when, you know, you get off stage and people will say to you, oh, how do you remember all that movement? And in fact, I don't remember it cognitively at all. I couldn't possibly tell you what it all is, but my body remembers it. So I I knew from training in dance and kinesiology, there were books that I was exposed to as a dancer on things like the thinking body, that I knew the body is part of the part of the knowledge that humans bring to their work, and particularly dancers, but even also particularly editors you're bringing your own body into the edit suite and that has a rhythm to it and so your signature as an editor your sense of rhythm comes directly from who you are physically Um, one of my teachers was asked me when I was writing this up she said do you mean do you mean that my editor cuts my film differently because she also teaches yoga and I said yes Absolutely. She has a different, she has a body rhythms that she's bringing, an approach that she physically brings with her into the edit suite that informs her sense of what feels right. Because feeling, is, of course, is a body thing as well. So mm-hmm. I had, you know, my own background in dance, and, and I had some really good teachers. Um, there's a great editor in Australia named Danny Cooper who cut 
She's cut a lot of, of feature films here. She's also the editor on Battlestar Galactica series, television series. And um, she, she just was, she's so concise. She's, she just says, when asked, she, she was asked in an interview, and, uh, and I also interviewed her at one point in my training, and she said, it's a body thing. Mm-hmm. And she's absolutely right. You know, your understanding of rhythm in part comes from your own body. And the other place, of course, that it comes from is your experience of the world, because the world is a rhythmic thing. The world functions completely on rhythm. You know, the sun goes up, comes, goes, the sun goes down. It's a rhythm. Mm-hmm. The days are a rhythm. You, you move around all of the movement of the world. Each, each movement has its own rhythm. And when we're har- working well together, we're all in rhythm together. And when we're falling apart and we're in wars and so forth, our rhythms are in conflict with each other. So you, as you go through your life, you take on board the rhythms of the world and you learn to survive in the world. I often say to students, you know, you come in in the morning, how did you get here? Did you walk or did you drive? Or, you know, okay, you drove your car to school this morning. You know what? If you hadn't had a sense of the rhythm of the world, you would not have made it to school today. You would have crashed your car. You need to feel all the rhythms of all the cars around you and all the people driving you in order just to survive in the world. So I reckon those are the two key sources of understanding of rhythm. And if you want to develop your understanding of rhythm, you develop your own sensitivity to your body rhythms and your sensitivity to the rhythms of the world. You talk about an empathy that the body feels towards even seeing what's on screen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And once we've harnessed like this kinesthetic sort of phenomenon, how can we use it to help improve our cuts or help structure the film when we're cutting? Well, this is, this is really where you need to, to go with your intuition in the sense that you need to sensitize yourself to what feels right in a very literal sense. Pretty much when people are talking about rhythm, they will, in, in a very casual way, they'll say it feels right or it doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. And, but that's an incredibly valuable tool because you're, what you're actually doing when you're, when you're seeing a rhythm, rhythm in the rushes is you're, you're kind of mimicking or mirroring its flow with your own body. All right. As you watch, all of your, your physiology kind of adapts to the rhythm um, that you're seeing on the screen. So then if you take two pieces of raw material and you cut them together, you've created a rhythm, right? You, you've, you've reorganized the rhythm of what's on screen. And the question then is really, is that flow um, respecting the rhythm that's inherent in the raw material? Or is it changing it for a purpose? Like, is it giving you a shock or a jolt or a, a shift to how it, your body feels when you're watching it? And, you know, is that for a purpose or is that just kind of random and messy, right? And, and so you're... Your, your feeling for how the flow of movement is unfolding on screen is an incredibly valuable tool. And when something strikes you as not keeping that flow or not changing it for a purpose, you need to go with that feeling and you need to get back in there and try again and try a different way until you can sense that that flow is moving along so it's almost like, you know, listening to your body as you cut, like if the scene's shocking and plays off your body. Yes. I think of 
horror movies. When you're cutting a horror movie, if you jump, it's working. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly, precisely. Your your body will tell you. And then, interestingly, this will kind of keep working for quite a while. I mean, editors always have a problem because they're the first audience and they have the first response, right? But then they can get, can get desensitized to the material. Mm-hmm. It's like, you, you know, you're in there with it for hours and hours and months and months, and, and it's it's easy to get desensitized. But in a funny way, if you can sort of drop your um, cognitive or your, your sort of conscious recognition of the material, oh, yeah, they say this, they say that, this is what happens, <laughs> and just let your body listen a bit, then you can... Um, keep some of that sensitivity now with that there's a lot of like a lot of sounds play play into that and at one point you talk about using a guide track as something that could actually throw off your rhythm or change the rhythm of the piece why is that and what other options would you recommend to an editor well okay so not not so much a sound guide track as a a music guide Mm -hmm. track can can well there's there's an exercise i do with students sometimes where we take a cut and we put different pieces of music to it and the meaning literally changes it's the music is so powerful um that it it's more powerful than the images in terms of how it goes immediately to to affect the body and the experience of the images so if you start with a music track particularly a music track that's not going to end up in the final cut and you cut to it well, look, it can be really, really useful. I'm not saying don't ever do it. I'm, and I try not to say do it, ever do that in the book, to say don't do this or do do that. But for me, personally, um, the music is already shaped. So it gets in between me and the rushes. It gets in between my body's experience of the raw material and the rhythms that are inherent in the raw material. So I find it a little bit dangerous or a trap. And if I am even... If I am going to use temp music, you know, to sell the cut to the producer or something towards the end, you know, later in the process, I try to strip it out when I'm actually cutting in order to really feel what that flow that is inherent in that material and let that material talk to me. So in terms of in terms of other options than using music tracks, I don't know if your readers are going to be willing to make this leap or not, but one thing that I suggest is that you sing. <laughs> Because in in a sense you're singing the vision track, you know, and and I so I don't actually vocalize it, but in my head it's I hear like I hear a click track or drums or a variation on the rhythm. I can I can basically kind of I hear movement. It's a kind of synesthesia, I guess, that I that I talk about, and um, Tom Hankey talks about it in in Gabriella Oldham's book as well on the first cut. And, and and a lot of editors, I think, have this kind of synesthesia where they they kind of hear movement or they feel movement or they're particularly kind of um, alert in their bodies to how movement flows along, and that becomes like a guide track for them. It's their own um, internal song with the with the flow of movement, and that's when you can tell when it's off. You kind of your song kind of breaks. Or the director asks you to stop. <laughs> yeah, right. Or the director asks you to stop. That's right. Um, and then you say to the director, "Why don't you go get some coffee?" Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Come back in half an hour. <laughs> well, the the other thing I was I'd like to talk to you about is you talk a lot about uh, Tarkovsky and Eisenstein. Like you mm-hmm. reference them, 
mm-hmm. I felt this was really interesting because Tarkovsky and Eisenstein are so they're polar opposites almost in yeah. in the way they cut. Tarkovsky in his book doesn't attack Eisenstein outright, but talks not not in so many words. Yeah, but, <laughs> but isn't too you know supportive. I guess we could say. How do you feel that both these filmmakers affected your idea of rhythm? And how can what can editors learn from them? To me, you know what what they represent by having what Tarkovsky and Eisenstein represent by having such diametrically opposed views of what editing could should be is two ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And I find these kinds of you know I find it so much more useful to have a spectrum than to have a right and wrong. And that's that's how I think they can I can reconcile their their two views of the world and what editing should be. For us living, you know, in in democratic capitalist countries, it's it's pretty unusual for us to have dogmas or manifestos or kind of life and death sort of worldviews. And you could say that's to the detriment of our filmmaking or not. But you know, I'm a centrist in in that sense that. I find them both really useful. And we have an expression in Australia, horses for courses. I wouldn't want to say one is right and the other is wrong. Different projects need different approaches. These are both ways of going at your work. And if you can can understand them, and then you can use them as tools. And again, it's a matter of sensitizing yourself to what's the director what have they shot? What's their sense of timing and rhythm? What's their sense of how a film should be put together? And is that present in the material? And can I draw it out of the material? And some directors, you know, are way over to, on one side with Eisenstein, and they're giving you little grabs of this great moment, that great thing, this this thing, and they're getting you to shape the sense of time and the, the flow of images in their film. Other directors are way over on the other side with Tarkovsky, and they have imprinted time on their raw material, on their rushes or their dailies. Time is already present, and what they want you to do as an editor is to respect it and connect the pieces together so that they flow along. Most directors, I find, in my experience, are somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. They have they have moments where they have created, they've printed time, and other moments where they're asking you to shape time and flow. And so you're really, it's very useful to understand both approaches and be able to make use of them. What do you mean by the pulse and the rhythm? You have a chapter on pulse within the rhythm. Pulse is, is almost so simple and so core that it becomes very complicated and hard to explain. But if you think of it this way, you have a pulse, right? And and most, all all living humans have a pulse, right? And you can feel your pulse. And your pulse is, is actually mostly between 60 and 80 beats per second. So I, I don't know exactly what mine is, but I have, you know, quite low blood pressure. So I'm probably down somewhere near 60, right? Anything on either side of that is considered fast or slow, right? That's sort of the average range is about 60 to 80 80 beats per minute, sorry, did I say per second, per minute. Okay, so you've got this pulse in your body, and it kind of regulates your sense of time as you go about your business in the day. And when your heart races and time is going faster or when you're, when you're kind of sleepy or, you know, really calm and calm is, time is moving more slowly, or just generally you're moving along, you have a pulse in your 
in your being, in your in your presence in the world. You take that pulse with you to the movies. That pulse gets changed by the movie, by the editor's sense of time, by the story's sense of time, by, you know, it gets, gets made to race or to slow down and to contemplate or whatever. So it's kind of... It's not an actual presence, right? You don't you don't hear it as a tick tick tick, just as you don't hear your own pulse. It's an underlying presence that is um, printed in the material and shaped by the editor as they put the material together. Um, another way to look at it would be to look at a um, and there's a little exercise in the book that that people can try to do if they're interested in exploring this further. When you speak, you also have a pulse. And of course, when performers speak, they have a pulse in their voice. And that pulse is like, is a pulse is, is a simple, is the most simple measure of rhythm. It's on, off, up, up, down, up, you know, on, off, on, off. So when you speak, you speak with a pulse. Now, mm-hmm. if I say that sentence again with a different pulse, it would sound like you speak with a pulse. Yeah. Or if I say it, if I try to give all of the words the same emphasis, you speak with a pulse, and suddenly you can hardly understand me <laughs> <laughs> because because the pulse is gone. The way that the way that you get the meaning of it is um, has been distorted into this kind of weird nonsensical thing where the where the emphasis of on of uh, where where I put emphasis and where I put no emphasis is just stripped of its of its common usage, and yeah. then you can almost barely understand. Me. Does that does that make sense? Is that yeah, helpful? Yeah, no, definitely. To explain? At one point, you talk about emphasizing and de-emphasizing, which can be yeah. really useful for an editor uh, of these pulses. Yeah. So you can you can find that in the actor's delivery. You know, one time they'll say "You're killing me," and the other time they'll say "You're killing me," and so forth. <laughs> they put an emphasis on a different word. Um, or you can kind of you can kind of shape emphasis with a cut. You know, you can mm-hmm. really come in tight on something and slam it the shot into the next yeah. into the next shot, and it gives a kind of an emphasis point. Now, you also you list three tools for rhythm as timing, uh-huh. pacing, and trajectory phrasing. I was wondering if you could give me your definition of timing and pacing, but also I'd like to talk to you about trajectory phrasing because this is a All new right. idea that you're bringing forward. Okay, well, the the timing and pacing one, this one I'll I'll say, have a look at the book. <laughs> this will be my my way of getting yeah. the getting the reader to go and look at the book. But I mean, really, the the question is again, timing and pacing are words people throw around all the time. And mm-hmm. you know, I don't think I've ever been in an edit where somebody hasn't said, "Oh, the pacing's really good," or "the pacing's not right," or something mm-hmm. like that. And you're going, "What?" Do you mean the same thing by pacing that I mean? Can we get our terms a bit organized here so we know we're all talking about the same thing? So in the book, there are kind of each of these words, timing and pacing, is broken down into sort of three operations. And timing, for example, might mean um, the frame that you cut on. Someone might say the timing is off, and they might actually mean the precise frame that you've chosen to cut. You've, You've timed it wrong, right? Or they might mean like the duration of a shot, which is not exactly the same as the precise frame. It might mean, oh, you know, this this shot's too long. It's holding for too long in relation to others that feel quite short. Mm-hmm. Or they might mean timing like the way a comedian means timing, like where you've chosen to put a shot, 
So, yeah. you know, where you've chosen to put the reveal or where you've chosen to put the punchline, it might be too soon or too late. So all of those are operations of timing. And if you know, if you, if you can know that those three are operations of timing, then when someone says the timing is off, you can either, you know, look at it for yourself and say, oh, it's the frame, I've picked the wrong frame or whatever, or you can drill down and find out what they mean. You know, you, do, you mean do you mean like the shots feel too long, or do you mean like they're just not precisely put together in exactly the right way? And, mm. you know, without scaring your director off by using a whole bunch of jargon, maybe if you have some words that you can use with them, you can make that conversation flow a bit more easily. Mm-hmm. So, so timing and then, you know, similarly pacing is broken down in the book and so into ways that the director and editor can talk about them together. Mm-hmm. And here I have to say I also hope that other people will find this useful because there's an awful lot of theory out there that tends to blur these words too. I'd mm-hmm. be quite interested to see if anybody who's writing film theory or editing theory takes this up and, and makes use of it. So trajectory phrasing. Everybody uses the words timing and pacing. Hardly anyone. In fact, I would be pretty close to saying no one's ever, certainly no one's ever coming to my edit suite and said, oh, the trajectory phrasing is <laughs> off. So I had, this is one I made up, and this is one that I think is a really core tool for editors. What trajectory means, the dictionary definition that I'm using, is the movement of something under force. So, you know, if, you, if you're throwing a football and you throw it hard and high, it'll it'll have one trajectory. And if you kind of just drop it, it'll have another trajectory. So it's not just the movement, it's the movement under force, meaning the energy that you put into the movement. Right. So what I'm arguing that an editor is doing is they are making movement phrases. They are shaping the way that the energy flows across a series of cuts across a scene, across the whole film. They're actually looking not just at movement, but the energy that propels that movement. And they're shaping it to give it a direction and a flow that has a meaning for an audience. Speaking about flow and the trajectory phrasing, one thing that you talk about is synchronizing with your director so you don't have that issue of the timing's off or the trajectory uh, (laughs) phrasing's off. But as the editor, we're... We're almost like uh, we're in line to see the film before the audience here. We're mm-hmm. cutting it for them. How do we synchronize with the audience if we're mm-hmm. not seeing them without test screenings, really? Well, look, this is a really interesting one. And, and um, editors do need to, you know, kind of represent the audience in that edit suite. And sometimes they have to represent the audience against the director almost, or, or, you know, usually, you know, it's more harmonious. The director's thinking about the audience as well and not just thinking about themselves, but, but not always. And often the director's way too close to the material to actually experience it the way an audience does anymore. So I guess, you know, there, there are a few things going on with, with representing the audience in the edit suite. One is, of course, to get back to that body thing and to remember that, you know, the audience is a body they are, they have bodies too so this material at some level is communicating directly to their bodies and mm-hmm. if you can sort of keep that sensitivity going of how it's affecting your body that's a useful thing one of my editing teachers and a great editor named Emma Hay H A Y if you're writing that down she has a really interesting um little trick a couple you know little tricks that she does to keep representing the audience one really simple one is to squint 
<laughs> right? If you just squint so that you can't actually, the, the images aren't so clear in your eye anymore so that you don't see them in exactly the same way, essentially what she's doing is just putting herself in a different position, like a fresh position again, seeing it differently. And, and that's just a really simple trick, but it gets back to that body thing of like giving that experience to your body in another way. Um, another thing that I really like to do is to bring someone in who's never watched it and sit behind them, right? So they sit in front of the screen. I sit behind them, and it's almost like I'm using them as a filter. I can feel when they jump and when they wriggle and when they, you know, when they lean forward and when they sit back, and you can actually kind of feel feel the film through them again. It's like you, you bring in a fresh bring in fresh bodies and you know throw throw the film at them in that way. Yeah. So so I mean, and those are, those are just a few things. And I suppose the other thing is really knowing who your audience is when you start. And depending on the kind of project, some projects know their audience completely, you know, mm-hmm. genre projects or things made for a particular television slot, they know that who their audience is. Others may not know who their audience is, and this can be okay or can be kind of a problem sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you if you can get the director to articulate who is this for, who is it trying to affect, that gives you some clues about how those people are going to be receiving it. You know, as it says mm-hmm. in the book, there's teenage boys will will receive something really differently than middle-aged women because mm-hmm. they're different attention spans, different life experiences, and different bodies watching it. Now, my last question mm-hmm. is, what is your favorite guilty pleasure film? <gasps> I forgot to think about this. You warned me. You warned me, and I forgot to think about it. Oh, God. <sighs> um... <laughs> The film, you mean like the film that I like that everybody thinks is is awful and how could I like such a thing? Yeah, or like one that, you know, yeah, just people are like, oh, how could you like that? Like, I just went and saw My Bloody Valentine 3D and I loved it. It was cheesy. It was great. All right. Well, I'm going to put one out there that's only going to be controversial in my country at the (laughs) moment, which is Australia. Have have you seen um, Australia? It's a new Baz Luhrmann film. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. No. Okay, well, it's very controversial because (laughs) basically it's a huge, glorious fantasy romance. You know, it has all the Baz Luhrmann trademarks of, you know, it's it's spectacular. It's it's not real, okay? (laughs) It's not real. Get over it. It's a fantasy. It's a romance. It's an epic. And here in Australia, it's um, the... uh, you know, the sort of film literati have mm. kind of really dissed it. They, they, yeah. They're sort of saying, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's such an um, unrealistic portrayal of what Australia was like during the war and an unrealistic portrayal of the situation of indigenous people. And yes, they're right. It's unrealistic. It's a fantasy. I love a big <laughs> fantasy. And it's yeah. a movie in the end, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's just a great big glorious movie. Well, thank you very much for allowing me to interview. That's a pleasure. It's great to talk to you. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank Karen Perlman for joining me from Australia. I'd also like to thank Lauren Woodcock, my producer. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>